and welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education podcast from AEI, where we evaluate efforts to improve the lives of families, students, and schools. This is our last podcast episode of the year, and this is the second year of The Report Card. And it's also our second annual year in review edition to look back at the education stories that hit the headlines this year. I brought in three excellent education journalists to talk through them with us. From Education Week, we have the assistant editor, Allison Klein, a longtime friend of AEI. Allison, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Also from the New York Times, we have Erica Green, education reporter. Erica, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. And finally, last but not least, Joshua Mitchell from the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for coming on, Josh. Hi, thank you. All right. Well, let's do this quickly. I asked you all to do a little prep and just tell me, hey, what is your top education story for the year? This doesn't have to be the biggest, just what you thought was most interesting looking backward. Let's whip around on those. And then I made a list of seven or eight more. So we'll trip through them quickly. Allison, can you kick us off? Sure. So I'm going to start off by talking about the Democratic presidential primary, which we're probably already sick of hearing about. We haven't even gotten to Iowa yet. So it seems like looking at the platforms of the leading contenders, for right now, resources and pouring money into education is really hot and in. And talking about a lot of the things that were interesting in 2012 and 2008, the previous presidential elections, like accountability, teacher quality, those things are out. We're not talking about low-performing schools. We're not talking about testing or at least increasing testing. If anything, we're talking about rolling back testing. Right. Those arguments were more about mechanics than anything else. We're not really having policy arguments as so much as having money arguments. So the popular proposal that everyone is super in favor of is plussing up Title I, which is the main federal program for disadvantaged students. I believe that Biden, Warren, Buttigieg, and Sanders, who are the kind of the top presidential candidates, all want to triple. And I think in the case of Warren, once they want to quadruple Title I, which gets about $16 billion a year. So that would be, you know, a really huge bump for that program. And that's $16 billion out of 75 total? About for the Department of Education. Right. So... This is like not going to happen. Even it doesn't matter which of these people get elected. We are it's really unlikely that we're going to see a tripling of Title One. The closest we really ever came was back in 2009 with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the stimulus, which made huge investments in Title One when Democrats could basically run the tables. Right. They had the they had the House. They had the Senate. They had the presidency. And, and even, a recession to respond to. And a recession to respond to. And even then, they only got, I think, about $10 billion for Title I, and it was over three years. So so quadrupling, tripling, this is not going to happen, but they're all talking about well, it. Well, I'm for quintupling it. Just, quintupling you know, it? <laughs> I, I'm just going to weigh in. There's also a, a number of plans on teacher pay. Bernie Sanders has talked about a $60,000 minimum salary for teachers. Kamala Harris, who's since dropped out, had a very ambitious plan to boost teacher salaries. So clearly that idea of low teacher pay and those strikes, it's getting through to this field. And that's a that's a constituency they obviously want to energize. So Erica, Josh, just weigh in here. I mean, what are they trying to signal with these things? How do you read the tea leaves about the Democrats' position? And also, there's sort of a consistency across it, it seems. What I would say is there is a huge emphasis on equity. We are living in a political climate where race and class are, are major issues, and public schools in particular lay bare some of the inequities in this country. Um, and when you're talking about people's children, I think that the candidates understand that there needs to be a reckoning that starts in school. You know, it's not, especially in this particular Democratic primary, we've seen candidates kind of 
sound off about how they're going to appeal to a huge voting block, which are black voters. And so I think what you what you see is them targeting a lot of their messaging and their platforms at really addressing some of the huge inequities that we see in communities. And I think they're most prevalent in schools. That's what I see. Yeah. It is a little bit interesting because the, you know, the counterpart, the Trump administration has come out year after year saying, let's cut eight, nine, 10, 12 percent of education spending. And so across the board, the Democrats are coming out as the antithesis of that. So just more funding, more funding, more funding really sets them apart from the Trump administration, clearly, but not necessarily from each other, at least in that aspect. Josh, what was your top story? So I think student debt being front and center in the Democratic Party primary right now is a big story. In 2016, it was free, free college. Now it's, should we cancel some debt? Should we cancel all debt? I think it speaks to, one, the anxiety of the cost of college that's risen, particularly with student debt having just soared over the past 10 years and tuition having soared over the past 50 years. But then there's this really big, interesting debate in the party about, you know, how do you steer aid toward the poor? And should it just be the poor that that get help or should it be also the middle class and the upper class? And so there's this big debate between, for example, the Sanders campaign and the Warren campaign. Sanders is saying, let's just cancel all student debt. You have Elizabeth Warren saying, well, wait a minute, let's let's only do it for people. You know, let's do fifty thousand dollars canceled for each person if they if they earn under one hundred thousand dollars. Beyond that, let's scale it back because we don't want to give too much aid to wealthy people. And then you have the the Mayor Pete campaign who's saying, hey, let's not give any debt cancellation for anyone above one hundred thousand. So there's this big ideological divide that I think is playing out, particularly with the student debt conversation of who should really get help here and how should college be financed. Just to throw in a wild card, Wayne Johnson, who was a top Betsy DeVos appointee, he even came out. He quit to run in this sort of uphill you know, hope of his to get the seat in Georgia, the right. Senate, seat, Senate seat, said that he is now proposing to cancel a substantial portion of student debt. So, and the Washington Post reported last week that President Trump has asked his advisors for some type of response to these calls for student debt cancellation. So, I just think we're having this really interesting discussion about how to finance higher education in the United States and who should get a lot of the help. Yeah. So, I don't want to opine here too much, but Allison, if you thought Title I tripling wasn't going to happen, I mean, the numbers on this are insane, right? I mean, Sanders' entire plan, he doesn't separate the debt cancellation, but is denominated in trillions, first of all. And Elizabeth Warren, which is the more conservative cost compared to Sanders, is at $640 billion. That's serious money, especially if you compare that to Pell Grant spending or, or so forth. But it's a it's a huge directional shift. And I think you're right. It's interesting that you hear sort of whispers from the Trump administration that they want to ante into this game. Who knows where that's going to play out over the next year? Well, it's also interesting that he is asking an education secretary who fundamentally, you know, believes that debt cancellation and loan forgiveness is irresponsible for a plan <laughs> to do just that. So I found that interesting that he would give the education department that charge, particularly under the secretary that he appointed. Yeah, well, I want to save the debt cancellation. We need to keep it separate from the other student (laughs) debt stories that we have to cover. Erica, what was your top story? The story that I am still three weeks later responding to, I'll choose that one, 
That is a story that my colleague Eliza Shapiro and I did on the democratic shift from charter schools. We published about, I think, three weeks ago. And we did not set out to be, you know, the definitive voice on what voters wanted from charter schools. We set out to tell a story about a large swath of families of color and charter operators of color who felt completely ignored in this election when it came to education. And there had been a group that had been going to every presidential debate, Democratic presidential debate, to, to protest Elizabeth Warren's plan and Bernie Sanders' plan for charter schools, which both of them want to scale back federal funding for the federal charter school grant program. And, th- and that fund is mainly to generate for, new for startup. Schools, yes, that right? is to gener- that is to invest in new charter schools to replicate and expand existing ones. And they both also want to completely eliminate (laughs) for-profit charter schools, which there is a lot of consensus in the sector on on that. I think a a lot of folks who are very pro-charter would like to see that as well. So we, you know, we went to Atlanta, or I did anyway, and followed this group that had been mobilizing for some time. And what's the group called? Freedom Coalition for Charter Schools, okay. led by Howard Fuller, who is a lightning rod in this debate. But that is who started it. So right. that is who, who, who we followed, but also spoke to a, a large number of families and educators across the country. And we pulled polling that showed that the Black community was, there was large support for charter schools. Yeah. And so this group was responding to what the two frontrunners at the time, at least, were proposing, and they wanted to make it clear that they wanted charter schools. And it just set off an explosion of debate, which I, I appreciated. But what really got lost there, I think, is, is family and, and student voice. And there was, from where I sat, I felt that there were, you know, there was coverage of these plans and missing from the stories were people who they impact it. Sure. And there's, so, a lot, there's a lot of accusations and it doesn't matter right. which side you're, whether you're for charters or against for charters, it's, oh, well, those are dark money groups and yeah. the people that are there actually don't matter. Yeah. But the interesting thing about this is what a pivot it is from the Obama years. It, it is. And, and that was a lot of folks in arguing with us conveniently <laughs> like to, to leave that part out. I mean, this is coming from, you know, the first black president under whose administration there was a great proliferation of charter schools. It had a groundswell of support. I mean, I think the Obama administration was also very clear that they wanted accountability for charters, but they saw them as, you know, engines of reform. They saw they wanted good ones to succeed. And there, you know, from from folks on the ground, there seemed to have been a huge shift. And at the end of the day, the federal charter school grant program is not going to be the end all or be all for any charter school. It was more the messaging that the families and and advocates had a problem with because support in Washington has given them cover to fight the battles in the states. If there were, you know, laws, which we've seen a lot of, actually, I mean, this 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 didn't start with the group going to protest. It started actually last year after the election. We saw, you know, in states, governors taking certain actions and and pushing legislative reforms on charter schools. We saw it in New York under Governor Cuomo. We saw it. We've seen it in Michigan. And so in California, sorry, huge one. one. (laughs) So that this this started 
you know, the groundwork for this was started in, in 2018. And even I was looking back and I, it totally escaped me. But this past year in the budget proposal, I, I, I noticed that there was a proposal to, ch- to cut the charter school funds in the labor HHS budget. And I went and asked about this. I said, this is, I mean, it's Representative Delaro, heads that committee, was a huge supporter of charter schools. Right. And I was like, how, how did this happen? And it's interesting because if you look at the language that was in the, the budget proposal, that is the language that's been replicated in the platform. Ah. Uh-huh. So obviously the the groundwork for this have been have been laid at least dating back. To so that. let's shift gears because I did not ask you guys to come in with the biggest story. But <laughs> what was the biggest education story of the year? Clearly the Varsity Blues. Varsity Blues. Yeah. That's right. All right. Yeah, let's remind everybody, Josh, what's yeah. Varsity Blues? So there was this counselor that uh, is named Singer, and basically wealthy parents, the wealthy of the wealthy, were paying him huge sums to figure out some way, often illegal ways, to get their kids into top colleges, USC, for example. So there's a lot of money involved. There's bribes involved, bribing some sports coaches to, you know, basically say, you know, their kids, this athlete, even though they weren't really athletes, uh, just so they can figure out a way to get into some of these schools. And, you know, I mean, there's been so much discussion in higher education in recent years about how sketchy for-profit colleges can be. And yet this like sort of, I think, revealed to a lot of parents, there's a lot of sketchiness that goes on at some top colleges. And it just really underscored this sort of dark corner of higher education. Yeah. And it was certainly notable for things like photoshopping faces onto photos of other kids playing sports, which I would not recommend as a way to get into college. But if you pay $75,000, that's what they're giving you. It seems strange. But Why did this capture so many people's imaginations? I think it's sort of it hits on this anxiety or this notion that a lot of wealthy people kind of start out with an advantage and a subset of them. I don't want to say every wealthy person because I don't want to paint with a broad brush here, but that, you know, some people will still figure out a way to maintain that advantage. And what's interesting is that, you know, like, for example, Lori Laughlin, this actress, you know, she was in Full House, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. I, I watched Full yeah, House Becky. as a kid. I, I liked her. Like, her daughter doesn't need to go to a top college to make it in life. And yet these parents are spending huge sums to take a seat that could have gone to someone else. And so it's more of like a status thing, it seems, rather than higher education being a way to move people up in life. I mean, for me, yes, it was a big story. Admittedly, it came about two months after I had covered a similar story out of Louisiana where black children were being abused and their school leader was, you know, fabricating their applications to get them to top colleges. And so I was maybe a little cynical where I felt like it the federal government confirmed this dirty little big secret (laughs) that we all knew. And it would really, I was actually looking through the clips um, because my colleague, Katie Benner, that I worked on the Louisiana story with, she she actually wrote this story when it first broke. And she said the way she wrote it was said it better than than I could. So I'm going to read it because this is why it was so big. The scheme unveiled Tuesday was stunning in its breadth and audacity. It was the Justice Department's largest ever college admissions prosecution, a sprawling investigation that involved 200 agents nationwide and resulted in charges against 50 people in six states. I mean, that is what was so stunning is that it was it was just vast. It had every element that you 
that you could want. It had the Photoshop pictures. It had famous people. It had, I mean, it just, it, it had federal agents across the country. Right. And it really implicated, you know, a, a certain swath of college that we all suspect have a lot of people there who buy their way in. I mean, I, I, I hate to be really, really frank. I mean, if you're a kid where I'm from in Baltimore City, you don't think you can get into USC or Harvard because your parents don't have a lot of money. Right. And for a lot of America, I think it con- it just confirmed what we thought to be true. Well, it's it, there's a lot of interesting questions that it raises. And it does. you can really raise a question really quickly if you have a recognizable celebrity involved in the story. And there were, you know, there were several of them, right? The other one was Felicity Huffman, Huffman. Yeah. who I didn't know. But then they said, well, her husband is William H. Macy. And I know William H. Macy mm-hmm. uh, well enough. Interesting that Felicity Huffman is the only person who's done jail time. Yeah. And is the only one who's long. apologized. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's also we had Richard Reeves on for an earlier podcast just to discuss Varsity Blues. And his whole point was this is not where it is, really legacy of missions and a number of the ways that we use sports to get in are a lot of the things that really are the levers that are broken here. But if you don't have a celebrity sort of hooked up to those things, it can be sort of hard to d- attract the attention. Yeah, some people made the point, you know, why why pay under the table when you can do it above the table by, you know, just d- giving a big donation to uh, the That's college. Right. And, you know. I mean, That's and right. it was yeah. called Varsity Blues. I mean, yeah. it was a great title. <laughs> kind of, you know, it's made for TV. All right. So we've got a number of stories to go here. So we're going to have to uh, shift into a higher gear. But teacher strikes were, again, a story this year. They were a story. They were not like the hot story. Like they were like last they year. Like they were last right? year. They were huge last year. And it's a different flavor. Last year, we saw big revolts in red states, mostly over teacher pay and funding for schools. And they were statewide last year. Statewide, correct. This year, we saw citywide, right. district-wide, in, in huge districts, Chicago, um, Los Angeles, Denver, and there was our blue cities, right. all, all three of them. So and they weren't just about they were about pay raises. They were about money, but they were about more than that in actually all three of these cases. So in Chicago, one of the things that the teachers negotiated for was the establishment of a sanctuary for undocumented students. That's something that they wanted. In L.A., they wanted to see more support staff and a commitment from the districts to hire more nurses, counselors, librarians, and also getting piggybacking on that charter discussion. They agreed, basically, they got the district to agree to give the union more input on charter co-location, which deals with, like, charters sharing a facility with a a traditional public school. In Denver, it was in in large part about the um, performance pay system there that was negotiated with the union, I want to say, about a decade ago under, I believe, Michael Bennett when he was superintendent of that district. So presidential candidate. Now presidential candidate who did not get play in our discussion for a reason. His poll numbers are pretty low. But anyway, getting back to Denver. So they ended up, they didn't end up getting rid of the performance pay system, but they did decide to study it and look at the reasons that teachers were leaving some of these high poverty schools and whether having extra pay as, you know, part of being part of a performance pay system would really entice them to stay. Yeah. Another example of sort of pulling back on some of the mechanics of reform that had gotten a lot of play, I don't know, in the past decade. Exactly. So I think it's I think basically two big takeaways here. Right. It's that teachers care not just about money. They care about like the conditions for their students because those impact their working conditions. And frankly, I mean, no one goes into teaching for the money. They go into it because they care about their students and they're using 
the power of their unions and collective bargaining to try to make policy changes that they think will benefit students. You know, you could argue that performance pay does benefit students. You could argue that charter expansion does benefit students, but that's not necessarily how these teachers and unions feel. And it also shows that teachers are still a big political force, right, going into the 2020 election. One other story we didn't talk about was that teachers were a huge part of the reason that Matt Bevin, governor of Kentucky, lost his race. Who also doesn't poll very well. He doesn't uh, poll very well. And interestingly, right, I talked to a teacher, I think either this year or maybe it was last year, who was a huge fan of President Trump, loved everything President Trump was doing, couldn't stand Matt Bevin. So, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that all Kentucky teachers have completely, you know, lost faith in the Republican Party, but they did not like this guy who was coming after their pensions. Yeah. And it's interesting to me to see week-long strikes in L.A. back in January and in Chicago just a couple of months ago. But in both these cities, it needs to be said, I don't know where they're going to get the money to continue to fund the systems that they have. I mean, they're just really running up against pension problems. And the ability to just pull off these deals is going to only get harder as things move forward. That's sort of my two cents. But my question on the teachers union front is, in 2018, I think teachers unions really had a good year PR wise. What about 2019? I wouldn't say they had a bad year PR-wise. I mean, unless anybody wants to disagree with me on that, I think that it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the 2018, like, look at these teachers and their textbooks from 20 years ago. And, you know, that you those, those some of those images from Oklahoma on underfunding of schools are really striking. But I do think that teachers going out there and asking for more resources for their students and making that a front and center demand, I think that plays pretty well. And I mean, certainly all of the Democratic presidential candidates were given, you know, attaboys to the teachers striking in L.A. and elsewhere. Yeah, it certainly looks like during the Obama years, the Democratic relationship with the teachers unions was more tenuous than it usually had been. And it certainly seems like the link is stronger now than it had been. So coming into 2020, it seems like the teachers unions are in a better situation than they should have taken for granted. I think that's fair. And I think you can see Getting back to the, the presidential race, you know, a lot of these folks going after those endorsements, they're going to be hot endorsements. So I put on pause the talk of DeVos and, you know, student loan forgiveness and that sort of thing. But there were stories there. Right, Josh? Oh, yeah. So there's these two big student loan forgiveness programs already in place. One is public service loan forgiveness. This is a fascinating program that's been in place for about 10 years Basically, the intent of this law was if you if you go into a public service job and Congress kind of was vague about how they determined what a public service job is. But if you went into one of these jobs, then you could get your student debt forgiven after 10 years of of reduced payments uh, tax free. And so, you know, the intent was let's help teachers who go into maybe rural areas where they're not going to get paid a lot. You know, let's let's forgive some of their debt just to kind of help them out. But it's turned into a much broader program than than the initial proponents envisioned it to be. And so the education department's got a lot of applications for people to have their debt forgiven. There's I, I see there's sort of two issues or problems with this program. One is that it's just turned into a bureaucratic mess. There's a lot of different rules you have to meet. There's a lot of different hoops you have to jump through. The servicers in some cases, don't even really know what those hoops are. And so sometimes students will be told, yes, you're on track for forgiveness. And then they learn later on, wait a minute, no, you're not. And so it's turned into sort of a mess where, uh, you know, a lot of people are just really scared that they've been doing everything they were told to do, and they're not going to get forgiveness. There's this second issue, which 
I see this as, again, an equity issue. And I don't think this gets discussed about a lot, but I wrote a story a few years ago called The Doctor's Loophole. And it's where a lot of medical students are coming out of school and they're going to work for, you know, nonprofit hospitals that might not be in a rural area or, you know, just might be in any old city that this program wasn't really meant to help. And they're going to earn a lot of money. And this program has begun become very popular among those students. And so I sort of use the example in my field. It would be like if, you know, I, you know, work at my newspaper, which is a for-profit company. You know, if I went to a public college, I could not get forgiveness because I work at a corporation. But if I went to work for NPR, and let's just say I went to a really expensive college, I could get a huge amount of debt forgiven. So I think that, you know, there's, again, there's two issues. I think there's a second issue that sort of hasn't really been talked about a lot, but it's like there's just like a lot of equity problems. It's like this program is providing huge subsidies for some people in a very arbitrary way. It's not really because 80,000 people have had their applications denied and only 1% of those who have applied have been granted loan forgiveness. Yeah, but three quarters of those are only because they haven't had loans for 10 years. You know, this program was only put in place in 2007. And so the Education Department said last week at this conference that the biggest reason 80% of these applications are being rejected simply because their loans aren't big enough. So I can tell you... Yeah, they're not in the right... So the the majority of them, yeah, are not in the right repayment plans and they're not... They haven't been... I mean, a lot of the bureaucratic requirements people are not meeting. But you're right in that the way Congress wrote this program, it was never going to provide the relief that teachers and police officers... I mean, that all of the, the folks and public service jobs thought that they were going to get. I mean, it just, it just, I mean, it was interesting because I, this is not my area of expertise, but I did have to write a story recently. So I researched a lot and I never understood because a lot of the headlines were Betsy DeVos is denying, you know, teachers right, <laughs> loan fell, forgiveness. It, it fell on Betsy and DeVos. It, it, yeah. And I, and I had to say, I'm like, this is not her fault. Right. Like this was never, I mean, it just was, it was written in a way that yes, there were inequities. I mean, I didn't know that a, nurse at a public hospital could have her loan forgive you know her loans forgiven right. and a nurse at a private hospice firm couldn't have his forgiven i mean anyway and i've yeah. well i've also heard instances where like people are creating like you know nonprofits that they can run to, to have like i talked to one person yeah. like that you know so like it's another example of people are going to figure out a way to take advantage of a program that maybe was not intended for them But it was billed early on as as, if you work for public service, which was pretty loosely defined, any nonprofit, any government, so forth, you know, we're going to help you out. But you really had to run through a bunch of hoops to just get through there. Lo and behold, people aren't happy at the end of the 10-year period, which just came to what, in 2017? Yeah, Yeah. it started in 2017. So this is a story that's not going to get much better. DeVos has not only taken a hit for this, but there's also the whole Corinthian and... Yeah, the defense to repayment. The defense to repayment, where perhaps in her year low, she was held in contempt of court and the Department of Education was charged $100,000. Yes, not an easy year, not an easy job in the Department of Education. Unlike public service loan forgiveness, those are her policies right, that right. she created, that she it, that is her department, her administration, her staff who tripped up, was collected on loans that they should not have, right. violated a court order. And here we go. So I would just separate the two. Separate right? the two. <laughs> the one was passed, I think. 
public PSLF was passed in the Bush years. Bush years. It, yeah, right. So that was a yeah, long time yeah, yeah. ago. Although I think just, I think it was Democrats who proposed it and championed and, it, but it was Bush who signed it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. But so she inherited that mess. Some would argue she created her own in the in the other case. Well, let's talk about NAEP scores, let's which are wholly attributable to whatever Betsy DeVos. No, 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 no. It's, that's not true at all. Uh, <laughs> NAEP is the National Assessment of Education Progress. We get these scores every two years. It's the gold standard for marking how much students are learning. And the progress is? Not none. Not Yeah, no. (laughs) So only one in three American students right now is reading proficiently, according to their most recent NAEP. So that is not great. And NAEP scores have been either stagnant or falling in reading. And they've improved a little, I believe, in eighth grade in math, if I have that right, but not substantially. And no one can say why, but everybody is trying is trying to guess what are the reasons that this performance is still so bad. One potential theory is that technology may be wearing down kids' attention spans. Who said that? A guy at, at the American Enterprise Institute. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got caught issuing such a conjecture, but I issued it, it as conjecture very clearly. Yes. So, but it is interesting conjecture, um, especially since I have now covered technology at Education Week. <laughs> and I mean, there's been many studies showing that you just don't have as much reading comprehension when you're looking at a digital device as you do when you're looking at, you know, just regular books and paper. So could that be part of the reason that students aren't learning as much? I mean, there's been a huge push in school districts around the country to embrace technology and embrace personalized learning. Even if it wasn't for that push, every kid has a digital device. It is a huge issue in schools. You know, how much screen time, put away your cell phone, is all of that time on tech wearing away our attention span? Education Week actually did an analysis of the NAEP background data and found that kids in grades four and eight who spent more time on computers or digital devices did indeed have lower reading proficiency. Now, we don't know if that's because maybe they are, you know, using those devices for credit recovery. And so these were the lower students anyway. So we can't necessarily draw that link. But it's certainly a troubling trend that these scores have not increased. I I do think it's troubling as well. I'll just say that one of the things that i pointed out was the drop in eighth grade reading was by far bigger than any drop we've ever seen. In fact, it's bigger than any change between two administrations we've seen on the reading score, and it was in the wrong direction. So we also saw PISA scores come out. They weren't even, they weren't very encouraging either. The one thing that PISA does, which is it it benchmarks 15-year-old scores internationally, right, on reading and math. And the thing that we saw there was we were holding steady in international comparisons, but only because other countries were doing worse, which is not the best way to, uh, you know, sort of rank in competition. The other thing we found out from that, which is also true in Nate, is that our lower scoring students are diving down and our upper scoring students are either treading water or, or, or in some cases rising. So not only are we not going up, we're the achievement gap just And that's not achievement gap by race or poverty, just flat out achievement gap growing. Good news there. Erica, what was this thing that came out in August from the New York Times on the 1619 Project? So the 1619 Project was an undertaking spearheaded by Nicole Hannah-Jones at the magazine. And what she set out to do was bring together a collection of pieces from several scholars, historians, who could put in perspective how slavery contributed to the origin of this country. You know, one of the most popular components of the magazine, I think, 
is the materials that are making it into classrooms across the country. Right. And the Pulitzer Center helped come out with curriculum. With curriculum. And this is for all grade levels. And so, like in Chicago, it's been put in place as supplementary yes. curriculum materials supplementary. across Chicago. So right. it's gotten a lot of take up in schools. In schools. Yeah. And, and for the school districts that are seeking the project out, I helped get some to Baltimore. It's really this this idea that, you know, what is taught in different parts of the country about slavery and particularly what's taught in urban school districts varies drastically. And I know in places like Baltimore and to some extent Chicago, educators there really wanted students to see themselves reflected in history, to understand where they came from, to I know I wrote for the kids section and my task was to debunk five myths about slavery. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, there I will never forget, I was interviewing one historian who just pointed out that students in K-12 across the country and, and from his research, you know, they believe that there were no rebellions. I mean, he would get questions like, well, why didn't they fight back? And that can seem really basic to, to some people. That is basic. It, it is. <laughs> and But the kids today, I mean, that this was his point. The right. kids today are like, I just don't get it. Like, how could you, how, how, why didn't they fight back? What they didn't know is that there were 200 slave rebellions in this country. I mean, the, just that basic knowledge about that time and you know, Black America's history is is lacking. And so when we say supplement, that's what the project is doing. And it garnered plenty of controversy. It though, sure Because did. they titled it 1619 in part to say, you know, this is the first time that African-American slaves were brought to the American colonies and that we should think of 1619 rather than 1776 as sort of the I don't know exactly what they would say, but as the birth in, of, the, of the nation. OK, so any any way that is put. I think it was sort of designed to be a little controversial. Well, I, Nicole Hannah-Jones, I, I always go back to this when I have to explain that she calls it a radical reframing. And she defends that. And I would highly recommend anyone who believes that to be true or not read her essay for why. But yes, it, it was controversial. And, and it is it was a radical reframing. So let me talk about the big admissions case that didn't even make it to the Supreme Court. This was a big case against Harvard's education or admission policies. Josh, what went on there? So basically, this case was, does Harvard intentionally discriminate against Asian Americans? It was a very interesting case because this was sort of, you know, pitting Asian Americans against African Americans, so to speak, in terms of, you know, who does affirmative action? What is the what is the what are the effects of affirmative action policies at Harvard? The judge said, no, this is this is constitutional. You know, there's there's not intentional discrimination here. It's under appeal. And, you know, it could go to the Supreme Court. So, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, sort of this age old debate about affirmative action. Again, it had an interesting twist because it showed that there were significant gaps in terms of the academic credentials, so to speak, or test scores slash GPAs of, of Asian Americans versus other groups far higher. So it was an interesting case, but they ruled in favor of Harvard here. We'll see where it goes from here. And of course, this has Edward Bloom's fingerprints all over it, who is a guy who has set up court cases that are more or less designed to end up with the Supreme Court. We don't know right now if it will go to the Supreme Court, but that's sort of Very where likely. it's headed, right? Yes. I mean, no matter what the ruling was, it was probably going 
to the Supreme Court. So this is not only one of the big cases that came out in 2019, but very likely could be one of the big cases that we talk about next year. There's another case that has to do about diversity that came out of New York City and had a, you know, a national splash. And that was about New York City's selective high schools. Yes. So to this day, New York City is experiencing, I will call it a reckoning as well, over its elite high school entrance criteria. My colleague Eliza Shapiro has covered that quite deftly. You know, this started with a new superintendent who recognized that the city was highly segregated and more than just racially segregated. There was a group of schools that were almost exclusively shutting out Black and poor children. Right. Like Stuyvesant had lower percentages of Black students than it did in, than it did in like the 40s yes, and 50s, right? Yes, okay. exactly. So it's a problem. It is a problem. And, this, and students have been protesting in New York City. In fact, I know they had planned to do a boycott of school this week. I think there was a sit-in instead. But this is still going, you know, this is still going on. What I will say is that there has not been, despite, you know, recommendations from panels to scrap gifted and talented and a recommendation to even, you know, change the entrance criteria, which sparked a whole effort (laughs) to shut down that plan. What we haven't seen is any any concrete steps from the leadership in New York City to go in either direction. Right now, they're still studying the issue. It seems highly unlikely that we'll see any movement there. So it's interesting because what we're seeing here is a story in New York City, Mm -hmm. and it is not a government recommendation or a plan or concrete steps to take apart these schools. And it still has a national, national impact. Even though there's no concrete steps to, you know, take apart the exam or so forth. Even the suggestion is... Which, whether you sort of fall on, oh, I love these sort of tests in schools, or this is an absolute injustice and we need to do about it, it's remarkable how much of a chord this small step will strike. I think that has to do with the fact that we're seeing communities across the country up in arms as they struggle with issues of redistricting and boundary rules. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a good seg there. We've definitely seen, even in very liberal communities, like the one that Erica and I actually both grew up in, in Columbia, Maryland, Howard County, Maryland, there was a huge fight earlier this year over redrawing boundaries to make sure that it wasn't even necessarily about race because actually, you know, there's a pretty good distribution of wealth among various races in Howard County, more so than in in other parts of the country, as much as it was about making sure that free and reduced price lunch kids were well distributed throughout the county and not just concentrated in particular schools. And, you know, this very liberal, you know, I, I don't know how well Hillary Clinton did in Howard County, but I imagine it was she ran away with it. There were some really ugly fights over this issue. And I think that was one kind of undercovered story. You're not necessarily my hometown, but this idea of racial, economic um, integration integration. and the pushback to it. We're seeing the same thing just to yourself in my new hometown of Montgomery County, Bethesda, Maryland, where they're having the same sorts of things. Again, no concrete steps yet. And still people are ready to come to blows. This same issue came up in the debate stage for the Democratic candidates for a hot minute when Kamala Harris came after Joe Biden for his record on busing. It sort of ties back to the 60s and 70s when these same issues were sort of tearing apart communities. You can still sort of see them at play. 
it'll be interesting to see whether we see more of these issues surface over the next year. What other news stories didn't make it? So that was our top 10. What other stories should have made it in or should have been bigger stories, but didn't for one reason or another? Well, I would say that anytime that Education Week puts juuling or vaping into a headline, we get mega hits on that story. It is obviously something that our audience, which is mostly school superintendents, school administrators, principals, folks like that, really care about. And it's because they are just constantly dealing with their kids hiding like e-cigarettes in classrooms, like running to the bathroom to vape, texting each other on their cell phones, like when are we going to go vape? Like it is a huge, huge, huge issue. And it's to the point where multiple school districts actually very recently filed a lawsuit, districts in Kansas, Long Island, and Washington State against the company Juul, which makes a lot of these vaping devices. And they're saying that they have hooked a young generation of smokers with like sweet flavors and that they're trying to appeal to young people. Juul says, no, we're just marketing this for everyone. We can't help it if fourth graders really like our product. And we'll see where these where these lawsuits go. But it's definitely juuling. And this entire issue is just something that educators are really worried about. Allison, you've clearly been listening to the report card because Scott Gottlieb came on last episode to talk about juuling and vaping. And so listeners, if you didn't catch that one, go back and listen to Scott. He'll tell you just how we need to combat vaping. It's interesting. The FDA actually put sort of PSAs against vaping right in the the bathrooms because that's where kids go to vape. So that's where you need to put the advertisement in schools. Last issue that I'm surprised that I'm bringing up as the last issue is Betsy DeVos's Education Freedom Scholarships. What were they? And are they going to get any traction in 2019? So this was a tax credit scholarship that would have allowed individuals and corporations and states that decided they wanted to participate in this, totally voluntary. Totally voluntary. Totally voluntary to fund not just private school choice, although that was one of the options, but also public school choice, after school programs, summer learning, early learning. The state could basically decide where they wanted the money to go. I believe under the Senate proposal, apprenticeships were, were part, of the, part of the package. It was the administration's, I guess, biggest and boldest move at delivering on their vision of school choice, having this, you know, school choice advocate as secretary. It was the only thing that Trump floated during the campaign as his big education policy. And really, if they were going to do this, they had an opportunity to do it with the big tax reform bill. But, you know, the behind the scenes reporting said that basically if they had attached some sort of a tax credit scholarship to that bill, it would have tanked it. It wouldn't have it would not have moved forward. So they kind of decided to bring it up anyway, knowing that they had no legislative vehicle for it and knowing that it really wouldn't go anywhere. But I, I suppose they've put down their marker on it. If another administration brings it up for eight years from now, we'll say we'll be able to say, you know, President Trump and Betsy DeVos proposed this back in 2019. Sure. And it yeah. was the big K-12 proposal that was advocated mm-hmm. by the administration. Mm-hmm. And it's been hard to get like, yeah. do you think the House is going to be interested mm-hmm. in taking it? No, I'm getting Probably not. Probably not. But I am interested to see just, I I asked the secretary this at EWA at the Education Writers Conference last year. It's just, it's it's her marquee issue. And I am interested to see if she, you know, if she doesn't return, depending on what happens in the next election, if this is her last term, if she is going to walk out the door having not made any headway on this. I'm not sure. I, I feel like, I don't think she's, she's done, but we'll, we'll see. 
I mean, I think that I guess that if she walks out the door and she could claim that they did expand <coughs> 529 plans, which are really for, you know, middle and upper income people yeah. to private schools. I think that was their the, the Trump administration's only win. This is the biggest opportunity in history for school choice. And I think it's pretty likely they're going to walk away empty handed. I mean, I you can't think? imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine the House is going to do anything. And I think my guess is that this is Betsy DeVos's last year as education secretary, no matter who wins the 2020 election. Allison that's just Klein my own lays guess. down a marker. She did say she did not think she was going to return. Yes, she told. I mean, it's not really my marker. She told Erica that. Well, take credit because from the sounds of it, it's yeah, a I, I, yeah. I one big story of the year: Special Olympics. Did we just? That's I'm right. I am silly kidding. story. <laughs> there were plenty of silly stories. Josh, what about from the higher ed side? Anything that so, didn't make the top? Yeah, the college scorecard. So, you know, this started in the Obama administration. The whole idea is you can go on this website, figure out how much you can, how much student debt you're going to get in on average for a particular school and how much you can earn if you come out of that school. Well, the Trump administration just said, let's let's actually break that data down to the program. So now you can search, you know, not just a school's statistics, but actually programs within that school. And if so this gone, is sort of like by major, how yes, much you're going to make and how much. Exactly. Like what is the return on investment if you're an English major at Towson University? Sorry, I had to plug in your roots there, although you didn't go to Towson. I didn't. But, yeah. I went to college. You, you live near Towson. So this is huge because, you know, I have to say, I have to plug it, I have to give my website a plug, WSJ.com. We had this story that we made a search engine and it was like during one of the big days of one of the impeachment hearings, this was the top red story. People just seemed to have an insatiable appetite for how much college is going to pay off. You know, there there are some restrictions in terms of what the data tells you. For example, it doesn't include parent plus debt. I'm I'm huge on that being included. But, you know, point being is that we are getting more details about which programs pay off and which don't. Also, NCAA athletes. Wasn't that a big story? Athletes uh, eventually getting paid. I just wanted to. Will they get paid? That yeah. may be yeah. uh, the next one. And I, I just <clears throat> want to point out that the popularity of that story on WSJ.com during the impeachment. Oh, my God. It was actually yeah. could be a product of people being so bored by the impeachment hearings. I don't know if you it wasn't even in the top five stories. Oh, interestingly, hmm. well, it was not even the top five stories impeachment on that day. So quick whip around because I need to close this down. Allison, you start. What do you think next year? If I can get you back, you'll say is the top story of 2020 H.E.A.? No. <laughs> Sorry. That's the Higher Education Act. I don't know if this will really be the top story, but a story that I would imagine that folks will be covering this time next year is the selection of the next education secretary. That could be. Which will either be Donald Trump's next education secretary or Democrat to be named later's next education secretary. And if it is Democrat to be named later, like I am sure that person will have been a teacher at some point in their lives. Like I would lay a lot of money on that. Quite likely. Erica? I'm going to go with that one, whoever <laughs> whoever the next president and the next education secretary is will, will probably be what we're talking about. Josh? Well, I'm going to end the show the way it started, which is I think student debt is not going to go away. I think, you know, like I said, if I'm reading the tea leaves, Trump is going to have some type of response to student debt, which means everyone who's running for president wants to do something with it, and it's a matter of what's going to happen to it. And so I don't know what's going to happen. I just think there will be some type of bold move on that issue. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for the next education secretary. 
and their plans to deal with student debt. It might be the same story. You're talking about the same thing. Same thing. Erica, Allison, Josh, thanks for coming on the report card. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the report card. And special thanks to our guests, Erica Green, Allison Klein, and Josh Mitchell. Thanks also to our producers. That includes Nathan May, Lexi West, Tyler Hoover, and Gage Hurley at Liquid Media. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, take a minute to leave a review and a comment. It helps other folks find out about the podcast. If you have suggestions or topics that you'd like us to cover, send us an email at ed.podcast at AEI.org. Signing off for 2019, I'm Nat Malkus.